Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the FT Business LSE European Institute Future of Europe lecture series, which has been addressed by a number of eminent people, and none more eminent than our speaker tonight, uh, Carl Otto Pearl. He uh, helped to finance his undergraduate days at Göttingen by working as a sports reporter, it's something that I envy him almost more than other things. <laughs> and uh, that, of course, uh, enabled him or to taught him to keep his eye on the ball ever since then. Now, having then done graduate work in economics, he became director of the IFO Institute of Economic Research in Munich. From there, after the SPD victory, electoral victory in 1969, he moved to Bonn to work with such luminaries as Carl Schiller and Helmut Schmidt in the economic and finance ministries. Uh, his rise in the ministries was very rapid, so much so that in 1977 he was appointed as vice president of the Deutsche Bundesbank and succeeded Otto Emminger in 1980 as president. He remained in that role until 1991, also serving on the Delors Committee and setting the groundwork for the European system of central banks and for the Euro. He resigned in 1991, partly in protest at Helmut Kohl's inappropriate handling, that's my words, not his, of the monetary aspects of German reunification. He then returned to private banking with Sal Oppenheim in Cologne, where he became chairman, retiring in, I think you said, 1998. He is an immensely senior authority on European monetary affairs. And so we look forward with great anticipation to his comments on the story of the Euro, past, present, and future. Before I hand the microphone over to Carl Otto, I should just add that this is a particularly opportune moment for this lecture since it coincides uh, with a new and excellent book uh, by David Marsh, who's here today, uh, on this same subject. And by a remarkable coincidence, this book will be available for anyone who wishes to purchase it outside the lecture theater uh, at the end of the lecture. Um, Carl Otto, welcome, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm really amazed about this audience here. And I, last night in the embassy, uh, we had a, a different audience. Uh, I take from that that the interest in European affairs and the Euro in Britain is maybe even bigger than in some European countries, despite the fact that Britain is not a member, unfortunately, I would say, of the European Monetary Union. So uh, uh, I want to make a few remarks only because it's a broad subject the future of the euro and a very uncertain subject too 
I think. Uh, and then we can have a discussion. You can ask questions and make comments. Uh, that makes more sense, I think, than listening to my uh, remarks. Because I left the Bundesbank already 18 years ago, and since then I'm a little uh, in distance with the European affairs. I was in, as the chairman said, I was in private business, and private banking, and so uh, maybe I'm not fully up to the recent developments. Uh, only a few months ago, the Eurozone celebrated its 10th anniversary. Uh, and that was still an amazing fact because it was so much contrary to what many people, particularly in the United States, had predicted. For instance, uh, Alan Greenspan or Martin Feldstein and other prominent, very well-known economists. It seemed at the time of the 10th anniversary, only in, in, in December when it was, that the Euro was a, a great success story. Uh, together with other achievements in the 80s, the single market, for instance, was a great step forward to integration. And the Schengen Agreement, where Britain is unfortunately not a member, but uh, as a German citizen or a Swiss citizen, no, not a Swiss citizen, as a German citizen, you can travel to Paris or to Rome or to, to Madrid without a passport anymore, which is something. Uh, so the euro seemed a big success story. The design of the euro, of the European Central Bank, which was modeled after the Bundesbank model, of course, and that was the condition for, for us to accept the giving up the sovereignty and the Bundesbank and the D-Mark, which was a holy cow, sacred cow in Germany. Uh, the, it uh, was drafted after the Delors Committee had met by the governors of the central banks, under my chairmanship, by the way. Uh, we drafted the statute of the European Central Bank, uh, and this became part of the Maastricht Treaty. Central banks in Europe became independent, which was a strong condition we made, and uh, focused on price stability, which is also not, it goes even further than the Bundesbank law. And even central banks in Europe who did not participate in the Euro area, for instance, the British Central Bank, uh, followed or part, uh, uh, the, followed the the guidance or the, the, the principles which were agreed upon in, in the the statute of the central bank. Uh, for instance, price stability as a first priority, uh, and etc. I would say, looking from hindsight, uh, that on balance the euro has uh, brought uh, many advantages for the participants. 
different advantages. The it Italians, for instance, or the Spaniards, they got German interest rates, so to say, low interest rates. Germany had the advantage that about 60% of its exports went into countries with which we had fixed exchange rates. Uh, so that was a big advantage just recently in the current financial crisis. Uh, so um, uh, everything was fine. Everything, and they praised the, the founders of the EMU, praised each other as being so successful, and they thought the, the EMU would last forever. But the financial crisis, which we uh, now see, uh, has changed the situation, the environment. And of course, it has not changed the environment for the European monetary system, but it uh, has also changed the whole world, so to practically. Uh, the European Central Bank reacted only with delay. Maybe they had, they had wrong adjustments. Still in summer, last summer, they expected um, an increase in, uh, in, in, in yeah an increase in inflation and raised interest rates even. And at least they did uh, only only in, only uh, uh, recently they lowered the rates. But having said that, they still they resist still the ECB, ECB the European Central Bank still resists to apply radical measures at the Fed or the Bank of England uh, applied to their economies. But maybe it will change. Um, nevertheless, the euro was depreciated against the US dollar, but only against the US dollar, That's a, and against uh, some very few other currencies. Uh, that was great uh, advantage because the uh, uh, depreciation against the dollar was only had only a limited effect on the economies, but nevertheless, uh, the economic situation in Germany, for instance, is as bad as in other countries, and still very uncertain. The future, of the economic future of Europe, of the world, is still very uncertain. And doesn't know what, what will happen. Uh, well, another uh, one reason of concern is the fact that some countries in Europe are in the EMU are getting under heavy pressure now. They are confronted with the, the fact that their high borrowing in the, in the last 10 years have led to some more growth, but in, in the end effect, uh, it's, uh, uh, well, it has, the inflation was much stronger, 20% more than in Germany in uh, countries like Italy, for instance. 
and uh, their competitive position in the EMU has declined. So, uh, the Prime Minister of Malta, he said recently, he was glad that his small, tiny, little country became a member of the EMU, because otherwise it would go bust, would have gone bust, like Iceland. But uh, uh, in other countries, the pressure is uh, still, uh, it still exists, and it's uh, getting worse every time. I don't want to mention particular countries, but we all know which countries I have in mind. Uh, there is a strong misunderstanding, I think, about the legal situation, because legally there is a strict rule in the Maastricht Treaty excluding bailout uh, operations of other central banks or other countries. And that's for good reasons, because a bailout of a debtor country by a surplus country, like Germany, for instance, in the, particularly by Germany, would open the, the, the box of Pandora, so to speak. It would be like a jump in a swimming pool without water. And so uh, it's, uh, there is a strong opposition against the bailing out. But on the other hand, there are also political, polit politicians who give some signals which are a little, uh, making me a little nervous. For instance, the German finance minister, he said, well, we have to think about the support operations. And the commission, the European commission, he has a, uh, the commissioner who is in charge of monetary policy. I forgot his name, but he, uh, he said recently, he, he he made a proposal for common loans, for instance, guaranteed by Germany or, or other countries. So that is a solution which is no solution. It's not a solution. A British journalist, he, he wrote the other day, I forgot uh, which newspaper it was, he said, well, now all exits are closed. The members of the EMU, they have no choice. I think he was wrong, because there are alternatives to governmental support uh, by Germany, for instance, and that is the IMF. The IMF, that it, it was designed for this purpose, by the way. But the problem of the IMF is helping weaker countries in Europe problem is that the IMF has not, the, not enough money. They need a, an increase in capital. And that is the most urgent uh, reform we need. I, may, I hope that the governments in, in the uh, conference, which will take place in April here in London, 2020, uh, that they will decide on an increase in capital of the doubling or tripling of capital of the IMF. I'm not sure that will happen. It can happen only if the Americans 
are ready to participate. And that is a big, big if. Uh, but that's much more important than, for instance, uh, a limit to the salaries of managers. That's also it's an ugly issue. I mean that managers of banks who get state-owned, uh, state help, that they still get high uh, bonuses and so on. But it's a not a, it's a minor issue in my view. It's a minor issue. The increase in capital of the World Bank and the reform of the World Bank uh, and the IMF, the reform of the voting rights, for instance, is much more important, much more important, has much more relevance and much more weight. And it's the, I think it's the only way how to help uh, countries in trouble. Uh, the uh, voting rights, I mean, the Europeans still have, I think, 30% of the voting right in the IMF, which is ridiculous. And it's, uh, other countries like Brazil or China have m much sm smaller voting rights. So that has to be changed, and uh, uh, that's uh, the most important issue at the uh, summit conference of the G20. G20. Um, I wonder how I will come to, to these countries who are not members of the EMU, but still in trouble. And for them, it's even more urgent. Ukraine, for instance. Ukraine is close to bankruptcy. And uh, Lettland has, uh, the government has resigned already. So it's a very severe issue. Uh, um, despite all political de declarations, one danger seems to me very real, and that is uh, another subject, that the danger of protectionism. The Amer buy American British jobs for British workers, Russian prohibitive limits on uh, taxes on automobile imports, uh, French decisions uh, support the automobile industry, etc. They are warning signals. And despite, as I said, the declarations, political declarations, they say no protectionism at all, but in fact, there are already signs of protectionism, and that is one of the biggest threats for world economic stability. I hope that President Obama will not follow such a course, which is suggested by, the, by Congress. I mean, there was the idea, fortunately it was uh, given up, but it, there was the idea already inc uh, included in the uh, Congress decision for support that uh, the uh, support measures should be linked to American materials. Only American materials should be used in, in this uh, uh, operations. That was, fortunately, it was given up, the idea, and so that gives us hope that we can avoid protectionism, which was, by the way, in the 30s, 
in the deep de de recession in the 30s, was the, the, the practically the end of, of, of a free world trade, and which we have uh, we, we have to thank very much uh, the increase in, in welfare and in, in wealth and, and in and well-being of countries. So some politicians uh, and some economists as well have expressed the rather optimistic view that the recession will be finished at the end of this year, 2009, and that in, in 2010 we will at least reach a, a bottom line and from then we could start a new upswing. But I think that's uh, very opti over-optimistic, in my view at least. I think, but that's my personal view, I think the world will look very different when the crisis is over, which in my view will take at least three to four years. But it could be also longer. Take the example of Japan, where the recession and the, the stagnation lasted 10 years and it's still beginning again. One consequence of the worldwide recession will be very likely a decline of the US dollar as an international reserve currency. Well, the de facto, the dollar was relatively strong over the last couple of months. To my surprise, I must say, I had expected a different development. But the reason for the strength of the dollar are uh, very many and very heterogeneous. But the main reason, I think, is a technical one, that the hedge funds and banks had to bring back liquidity to the country. I think that the dollar will get under pressure again. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't want to speculate. But uh, uh, I, I'm bearish for the dollar, but <laughs> who, who knows, who knows. An increasing role in the future uh, of the monetary system of the world will play the Chinese currency, I think. And I'm pr pretty optimistic for the Chinese economy. The, the decline in China is very severe, but China has low public sector debt, uh, very low debt, and room for maneuver. And still, of course, the biggest currency reserves in the world, the biggest uh, creditor country. And uh, if the Chinese would use their reserves and to restructure the economy to increase domestic demand, which is limitless in China, uh, I think it could happen. They, they have a strong government, an effecti effective government, efficient government. So uh, China and maybe India will be, in my view, the first countries that will overcome the recession. And it's my, the only hope I have that they will recover sooner, and they still are growing, still growing countries, less than in the past, but still growing. So uh, 
if they change the, 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 uh, their demand from domestic demand into foreign demand, uh, uh, the other way around, and foreign demand into domestic demand, uh, the conditions are quite favorable. The uh, one thing I, 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 th I think is certain, and that is the increase, high in increase in public sector debt in Europe and in America. I mean, taking the program of Obama for $785 billion, billion unpredictable. Uh, that's very for sure that uh, uh, that will raise, will increase the debt, the public sector debt, and I don't know whether, whether it, it can be uh, uh, reversed or not, and when and, and how. Very uncertain how it will and how it can be repaid uh, and reduced this public sector debt. And the same is true for Europe, for most European, not all European countries, by the way, but most European countries. And that will be the, the, the next problem we are confronted with after the financial crisis, after the recession. We will f face a period of uh, very uncertain uh, public sector debts, and it, the danger is, of course, that such huge debts in Britain. I was, I read the other day. I don't know whether it's correct or not, but the, the public sector debt was, was get, uh, guessed at 150 percent of GDP. 150 percent, and in Europe, for for the European Monetary Union, for the membership. The, the limit of the public sector debt is 60 percent. It's much more already in Germany and in Britain and other countries. So that will be our next problem, but that's still in front of us. Uh, as to the The, uh, I only want to make a, a remark on British membership of the of the EMU. I don't. I know that's a very, uh, let's say, a difficult issue. Most the public opinion in Britain is still much against it. But I have the feeling that uh, we are on this. That, we, that the mood is changing. And the circumstances are changing, of course. F first, London and New York will lose much relevance as financial centers. I don't see, think that they will give up this role, but it will not be the same as it was before. Uh, governments will much be, be much more influential, and regulation will be tighter and more global 
whether one likes it or not, and I don't like it. I myself am very skeptical about the consequences of stricter regulation that the heads of government in Europe decided that all financial transactions should be regulated as a consequence of the crisis. I don't think they will avoid the next crisis with that. On the contrary, they will, it will be a limit for the activities of bank. Maybe there are changes necessary. I don't deny that, but not to the extent that some politicians have in mind. Uh, as I said, I'm fully aware that public opinion in this country is still very much against the UK joining the European Monetary Union. But uh, as what some journalists said, with respect to Iceland, which is practically bankrupt, public opinion in Iceland shifted to, to enthusiastic support of membership of the EMU when people discovered monetary independence come of a crippling coast. And that could also happen in this country. I don't make a prediction, but it's, uh, and I'm, as I said, I'm aware the fact that the public opinion in Britain is very much against, against it for the time being. But that could change. That's the only thing I'm saying. It could change if the circumstances change. And Britain has to take a decision whether it will belong to the American uh, room of influence or to the European room of influence and take part in the European process of integration and uh, of course it would strengthen the the EMU enormously if Britain would be a member and it also for Britain I mean why, why don't we consider British president of the European Central Bank Mr. Trichet has to resign in two years time uh, that would be a good opportunity uh, so I'm, uh, maybe it's a little uh, over-optimistic, but I, would, I, would, I think that uh, uh, it's a possibility at least. It's a possibility. Maybe it seems unrealistic for the time being, but uh, as I said, circumstances can change and uh, will change. And the EMU would play a much stronger role in the future than in the past if Britain would be a member. So let's uh, hope that I'm not wrong, that, is, that this is a realistic approach, but we will see. One thing I think is for sure, and that is uh, EMO will still survive even if we have some weak countries, weak policies, but they have no alternative. They have to change their policies. They have to uh, adjust wages to the European, to the necessities of the exchange rate system. And that was clear from the beginning. Convergence was one of the essentials uh, of the EMU. At the beginning, in the 90s, Maybe we had illusions, 
we had illusions about the policies in s some member countries, and we were a little bit too, too. Uh, uh, how should I say? We, we rushed a little bit too much to take some countries in the system, which are now not fulfilling the conditions of the system. But it's uh, most of them are very small countries. One has to see first of all. And uh, they have no alternative. If they get credits from the IMF, the IMF is the only international institution which can apply conditionality to the credits. And uh, that's a very important precondition for the success and for a change in policies. In, I don't m want to mention particular countries, but uh, I want to be diplomatic. Uh, but you know what I mean. A breakdown of the EMU system, uh, if, if countries would try to leave the system, for instance, that would be a disaster, an absolute disaster and in the first place for those countries who want to leave because then the, this, the currencies of these countries would depreciate tremendously. Interest rates would double and triple and inflation would go up and it would be a, a, a strict disaster. So I don't think it will happen. I hope at least it will not happen and the EMU will have a nice future and uh, David Maas book on the EMU, on the Euro, we'll see many uh, new, what is it, Auflagen? You understand what I mean. I, I don't find the word. So, um, uh, but uh, with this optimistic remark, I want to close and to open the, the, the floor for discussion, for questions. Thank you very much. When you offer questions, could you s please speak loudly, both for those behind you and the fact that both of us sitting up here are not as good as hearing as we once were? <laughs> First question is there. Oh, good. Thank you very much. Uh, my name's John Ewan. And, um, Paul, my question is this. Does the maintenance of a single interest rate help or hinder uh, the recovery which we're all hoping will happen before too long. Thank you. Yeah, I can, I can only agree with that uh, statement. It was a statement. Huh? It was not a question. It was a statement. I'll repeat the question. No, uh, yeah. uh, if the, I understood you correctly. Yes. The, 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 the single interest rate in the euro the single yeah. interest rate in the euro, does it help or does it hinder the prospect of economic ah, recovery? Yeah, yeah. It's the uh, one size fits all yeah, yeah. Uh, argument yeah. against joining the euro. Yeah, they? but that's not an argument against joining the euro. It's uh, a matter of fact that we have one single policy, one single monetary policy in Europe, but there's no alternative to that. Uh, if it's good or bad for Italy, for Spain, for Portugal, Ireland, 
it was certainly an advantage having the low German interest rates. But on the other hand, it was also a temptation for them to expand, uh, overly expand, to expand too much. And now they have to pay the price. But uh, in, on balance, I think it's the only possibility to have a, curr a, a single currency, have a single interest rate also. That's, that's a precondition for the system. Otherwise, it's not conceivable. Over there. Yes, just to <coughs> follow on from the previous question, um, how, how then do these uh, countries like Spain, Italy, Portugal, Ireland, how do they recover? Do they have to go through a very, very long period of wage deflation and uh, internal cost deflation and all, because clearly the present level of exchange rates, uh, they've become uncompetitive. It's how will Spain or Italy or Portugal recover from the present condition since they've become uncompetitive and they can't change the interest rate or the exchange rate? Will they have to go through a very long period of wage and price deflation? I'm afraid that this the last uh, remark is, is uh, correct because if my solution, what I indicated, is that these countries get case by case credit by, from the IMF, not from Germany, uh, or from France, or so, because that has uh, far-reaching consequences. So, and then the IMF would apply, if they follow the, the, their behavior, uh, strong conditions. And that is, I don't see any alternative to that. They have to, f they are members of the system and they have to follow the rules of the system. And this means for inflationary uh, countries with high inflation rates, high wage settlements, that they have to change their policies. There's no way out. Over there. In the blue shirt. Isn't the most worrying aspect of protectionism not so much protectionism in trade but financial mercantilism? The banks are lending domestically and not cross-border. And whatever the Chancellor of Germany may say or the Prime Minister of the UK may say uh, about avoiding protectionism, uh, they say that in international audiences, but domestically they appear to say that banks should lend domestically, particularly those uh, you know, which are in, in virtually now in public ownership. That's the first point. The second point is you referred to the IMS extremely limited resources. And as the discussion's gone on, I mean, the number of countries that could go cap in hand to the IMF is probably well into double figures now. Isn't it only natural, therefore, that particularly the Eastern European members of the EU outside the Eurozone will look to Germany for a bailout? They can't wait for the IMF to be restructured. That's not going to happen in the near future. Yeah. Uh, your first question, I mean, the banking system is in the process of changing. 
dramatically. Yeah? Britain, for instance, the most banks are nationalized, or some banks are nationalized in Germany as well. In, in Spain, it's different. In France, it's different. Italy is even different. But the problem is of, of the uh, banks lending cross-border is uh, that they have uh, lent already tremendous amounts. Hungary, for instance, uh, or to uh, other Eastern European countries in particular. That was a big business for Austrian banks, for instance. And that the problem is there. I mean, it's not coming. It's it's already there. So, uh, coming back to the question whether Germany is the the only surplus country in Europe, huge surplus. I think uh, the biggest surplus in the world, bigger than the Chinese surplus. But I'm not sure. Uh, but one of the biggest surpluses, at least, 180 billion uh, euros last year, that Germany should provide loans. Uh, that seems to be obvious. But first of all, it's not allowed by the Treaty of Maastricht, and you have to change the treaty. But that's a formal argument only. But why did we insist on the bailout, non-bailout clause in the Maastricht Treaty? Uh, the reason was that it would open. A, uh, it would have no limits if Germany would provide credit to, let's say, uh, Ukraine. Where are the limits? Uh, it, it's. I think it's a very dangerous. Uh, uh, it would be a very dangerous way out of the crisis to uh, expect Germany to provide uh, billions in form of loans and credits and common bonds and so on, and the different forms thinkable. Uh, and therefore, I'm very much against it. Uh, and, and many people are in Germany are against it, of course, but uh, some the political pressure will increase, uh, I'm, I'm quite sure. Enormous pressure will be built up, and it's so obvious Germany has the means to, uh, to give the credits to a certain extent, but it's, uh, uh, I don't think it's an alternative to the IMF borrowing. That's your question. That was the first question. The second question was, can Eastern Europe wait for ah, the yeah, IMF uh, to get sufficient <laughs> funding? Yeah, that's a problem, of course. Uh, depends on the politicians, huh? whether they decide to increase the funds of the IMF. It's, the IMF can act not immediately, but in very short periods of time. But if the governments under the leadership of Obama, I think the very high expectations are raised with respect to Obama, uh, if uh, they fail to fulfill these expectations, I don't know what you have in the market, the markets will take the lead, eh? and you never know what it's for. And I mean, the banks are not lending anymore; they are reluctant for understandable reasons. If I would be a banker, 
I would also advise my people to be very careful in giving new credits to somebody who may become insolvent within uh, three or four or five months. Uh, so it's a question of confidence, of course. It's very clear. But how can you create confidence in the market? The uh, program of Obama, and I have to remind you that the, the, the main problem is in America, not in Europe, in America. This gigantic deficit spending. The markets were very disappointed and reacted by lower stock prices, very steep decline in stock prices. So it's, you can, it's not easy to create and to re recreate confidence. It's not a question of money anymore. It's also a question of, I don't know what should happen to, to regain confidence. David. On the question of uh, the current account deficits, uh, it is quite clear that these current account deficits of the weaker nations will fall over time. And also the uh, high spreads on the debt, on the borrowing, could also fall back over time. Um, you say that the bailout clause is a problem. Why couldn't the strong central banks in Europe, let's say the Bundesbank and the Banque de France, make limited uh, period credits to, say, Italy and Greece backed against gold, rather like the Bundesbank did in the 1970s. Would that be against the bailout clause? Because that could bring back uh, a certain amount of certainty and bring back a certain amount of confidence in those countries and give them time to make the necessary adjustments. Uh, no, David. I, I, the answer is simply no. Because the Bundesbank is not able to provide credit anymore. It's the European Central Bank which is doing it. Of course, the ECB could provide credit to countries, even to countries which are not members of the EMU. But for the reasons I tried to, to mention, uh, it's also true not only for the Bundesbank, but also for the ECB. If they would provide credit, uh, when, where does it end? I mean, it's, uh, the beginning is very easy, eh? <laughs> but where does it end? It's, it can be an endless uh, experience. Thank you. Both the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve are talking about what's become known as quantitative easing, which I think is a, a, new, a new synonym for printing money. <laughs> exactly, <Do you>? yeah. <laughs> but printing money is a logical response to the threat of deflation, which most of us agree is worse than low inflation. Do you think the European Central Bank is capable of quantitative easing, given its very strange structure with the euro system? Uh, and yeah. Would it be the national central banks or the ECB that would do it? Now, that's a very interesting question, whether the ECB is even able to do that. 
I don't know the answer. It's a very complicated uh, question. And I'm not so familiar with the practice of the European Central Bank. But I doubt whether the European Central Bank will be able to do it because they have only limited reserves for, to, to start with. And they, uh, well, they can also, also, of course, buy toxic, toxic assets like the Bank of England intends to do, obviously, uh, or the Fed. But uh, I don't know whether the federalistic system of the EMU is uh, able to act in such a way. And uh, I, I think the Monsieur Trichet and his colleagues will be very reluctant to, to uh, open this box. Of course, there will be political pressure in that direction, but I don't think it will, it will succeed. Because the ECB is, and that is uh, worth to be mentioned at this occasion, is an independent institution, independent from governments. That was a very strong uh, conditionality when we uh, created the European Central Bank, that the, the governors of the Central Bank and the, the members of the board are independent as far as monetary policy is concerned, and nobody can urge them uh, in theory, at least. Uh, in practice, I don't know whether the crisis would take uh, such a uh, the, the order of magnitude that finally even the ECB would be weak and would give in. But I, I don't foresee that. I don't think that that would be the against the rules. And I, I hope and I think the ECB will st stick to the rules. It's my only hope. Uh, other central banks are also independent, but I'm not so sure about them. Since one always seems to have rules uh, in order to fight a rather unprecedented crisis where perhaps we have to suspend rules sometimes, you can always have contingent rules. I tell you that is, so there, is, there are actually two rules that would allow a bailout, and I have only learned that myself uh, over the weekend from a news service, Euro Intelligence, that Wolfgang Münchau, a FT reporter, um, maintains. There is, Article 103 is the one that is the no bailout clause, and it says no member states nor the community as a whole has an obligation to take over the debt of a member state and any of the subnational governments. In Article 100, it says, if a member state is hit by an unforeseen contingency, at the recommendation of the Commission, the Council can vote with qualified majority to bail out this very member state. And in Article 119, you find the same clause actually for the candidate countries. So it is simply not true that there is a rule that would, 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 would prevent us to bail out and just imagine the scenario. These countries, the Visegrad countries today, are attacked. It's the one crisis we haven't seen so far, namely currency attacks on countries, while we saw them throughout the 80s and 90s. And then the, the Austrian banking system goes bust. Then it is in the Eurozone, whether you like it or not, and it will be the ECB that is the lender of first resort of these countries. And I guess we should j just get prepared for that instead of 
maintaining that the IMF cannot do everything for us, which would be pretty unfair because the IMF has a lot to do with Latin America and Asia, countries that have not created this mess, while arguably the countries of the banks of the first world have. I'm not sure there was a question there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I'm, I'm sure that the, the lady uh, knows more than me. <laughs> There's a gentleman right in the middle. Okay. No, but I, I think you may be right. You may be right in practice. But uh, I think it's a, it's a very dangerous course which we would enter. And therefore, I'm against it. But maybe right that the IMF is that the heads of government couldn't come to a conclusion and in the 20th of April or when it is, or the beginning of April and in their in the government in the uh, conference and the, the G20 conference. But I hope not. I hope not. That's a very bleak. Out, outlook which you gave. I mean, you, you, you may be right, I'm not so familiar with the details of the EU treaty. Uh, I thought that it was not allowed to, to bail out countries and to take over obligations of foreign countries. Uh, and that was a part of the Maastricht Treaty, but I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I don't think I'm wrong, but I could be. Uh, you are right. Uh, so, I hope that will not be the outcome, but it can be the outcome of the negotiations and pressures and so on, because it has also aspects which are far beyond financial aspects, political aspects, military aspects, and so on. Question in the middle. Um, in today's environment, if a central bank had um, two goals, one of anti-inflation and the other of pro-growth, which one do you think should take priority? <laughs> well, it's, uh, by the way, it's um, a misunderstanding that the European Central Bank is not obliged to s simulate growth. It's only a second priority behind uh, the priority to maintain price stability. That's the first priority. Uh, if that is a, uh, a conflict of interest or a conflict of in, in practice, I think the, the central bank should, that my personal view as a former central banker, that the, the central bank should, in, should take care of price stability in the first place. But uh, because the other uh, aspect, stimulating growth, as in Americans, American experience shows what the consequences are. Alan Greenspan, I don't want to blame him, he's a good old friend of mine, uh, but he always said, well, inflation is not a problem and low interest rates are very favorable for the economy. I warned five years ago I was on, a, on the board of an American company and I always had to make a speech at lunchtime. Uh, and I remember and I, I insisted on the, on that this is a wrong policy. Uh, you, you, it's always easy to start with, but it's very difficult to finish it. 
continued growth policy of a central bank. The governments are still stimulating enough and, uh, well, a, a little recession from time to time is also, if it's in, within limits, has also positive effects. And uh, the, the uh, myth of a permanent growth, that's uh, problematic as we can see at, at this recession. At the back, in gray. Hi. Um, you started by saying that um, ZMU and, well, ZMU basically decisions were lagging behind uh, those of UK and the US. And um, based on the uh, the answers to, the, to, to, to all the recent uh, questions, it seems to me that um, the um, EMU uh, room for maneuver is quite limited and based, maybe based on uh, rules that were established in very different, uh, you know, market conditions. So I'm wondering, what do you think there is in the euro for the UK? You were saying that the rules and arrangements for the euro area were, or the eurozone were arranged in very different circumstances. And he said that you had said at the beginning that the ECB was lagging behind uh, the Fed and the Bank of England. So what's in the eurozone at the moment that would make the UK want to join? question. I don't know what you mean. Well, he, he was arguing that the, the Bank of England and the Fed are taking more aggressive action yeah, yeah, yeah. to get out of the, out of the present yeah, recession. Yeah. The ECB, as you were saying, was rather behindhand. So why, why when we are taking more aggressive action to get out of the present difficult circumstances, should we want to join an area which is not taking as strong action to get out of the recession? Well, that's only a very marginal difference. I mean, the ECB also, finally, the, the, the lowered interest rates, the European interest rates is now 2%. Uh, it's not so far away from zero, uh, which is the case in, in America, for instance. Uh, but uh, I think the ECB uh, wanted to have some room for further maneuver if necessary. Maybe they are wrong. Maybe they should have taken a more aggressive position. But uh, the difference is not so relevant. At least it's not a reason. I mean, it's not a very strong point in the argu strong argument against joining the EMU. And I mean uh, with joining the EMU, Britain joining the EMU, I, I see that in a longer perspective. Uh, I mean, if Britain would join in two or three years' time, let's say, the, uh, if the conditions are fulfilled in Britain, which is not the case now, uh, <coughs> if Britain would join, the EMU would gain enormous weight compared to the weak dollar, which I expect. Maybe I'm wrong. 
but uh, that's the scenario which I have in mind. A weak dollar, an increase in the value of the emu, the euro, but who knows? I'll take a couple more questions. One in gentleman in blue with a pink tie. <laughs> nice color combination. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've, got, I've got a couple of questions, if that's okay. The first, first one, I'd like to know your view on a common uh, European bond issuance. Um, and the second question was just to follow up on the quantitative easing question, um, which was, I, I wasn't quite clear whether or not the individual member states would be able to indulge in quantitative easing. So, for example, does the Maastricht Treaty allow um, France, let's say, to um, underwrite its own bond issuance? The first one is Soros's idea of a Eurozone bond. Do you think that's a, a possible or a good idea? No. No. <laughs> Simply not. Because of the differences in, in the economic performance of the European countries and the, the, the actual yield on government bonds in Europe are already still drifting uh, far away. <coughs> The uh, European bond would be on, on the, a burden on, on Germany, of course, or the German interest rate. And so um, I don't think it's a good idea. What was the first question? The second question was if the ECB was unable or did not want to do quantitative easing, could an individual national central bank do it on its own? No. No, it's not possible under the statute of the. ECB. Uh, only the ECB could do it. I don't know whether it's uh, it's com uh, com uh, um, it's uh, possible under the given law, but I think it is. I think it's possible. The final question is up in the top. It's a gentleman in the blue sweater. Hepul. Uh, uh, you just mentioned that it's highly unlikely. That Who's speaking? Uh, I'm <laughs> Good evening, Apple. Uh, you just mentioned that it's highly unlikely that the weaker countries of the European Union uh, leave the euro. Uh, under what circumstances could you see Germany willing to drop out of the euro? The, the question was, um, might there be any circumstances in which Germany would want to drop out of the euro, perhaps because he got outvoted uh, in the general council and the, the euro became a more inflationary area. Uh, well, that's an uncertain outlook. I, <laughs> I don't see that coming, and therefore I don't expect it to happen, and I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, I think all that remains is for us to thank Dr. Pearl in the traditional way for providing us with such uh, clear and straightforward answers. In many cases, nine. It won't happen. <laughs> so.